We want to think about the Lord's table this morning, and the whole service will be focused on that. Christ said on the night before he was betrayed, before he was crucified, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. You might say those were his last words before he died. Of course, he rose again as victor over death, but you know how important last words are. Most of you know, those that have been around here for a while know that my wife and I have been married 23 years. I have the privilege of being married to her. Prior to that, I was married almost 24 years to another wonderful, extraordinary lady, and she was to just an extraordinary man. So the Lord's given us another opportunity. Both of us have warm, deep, moving memories to the remembering the last words that both of our mates shared. So I have a journal at home, and there's a little torn-off slip of paper in that journal uh, that has the last words my wife attempted to say before she passed away. She could hardly voice those words. It was hard to understand. This was prior to going into a coma for two days and then passing away with cancer. So that's been 27, almost 28 years ago now. Uh, Those words will mean nothing to anybody else but me, especially, and to my children, uh, and perhaps her family. But those are precious to us because it's the last thing that we have recorded that she said. Christ, before he was betrayed, had something incredibly powerful to say. And so we want to think about what happened that night when he instituted the Lord's Supper. We want to think about what happened, why it happened, how it happened, its purpose, so that you and I can be reminded. Because this is what the Lord gave these 12 and passed along to the disciples, uh, through the disciples to others, and then what was passed along to the Apostle Paul personally that he recorded that Pastor John reads each time we have a communion service where the Lord said, do this in remembrance of me. What we're remembering is him. First of all, he says, do this, do this. Then he says, in remembrance of me, not in remembrance of your sin, although it's, it's, you can't avoid thinking of sin if you think about why he died, as we will this morning, and how he died, and the extent of his suffering. Why did that take place? That's a sobering thought. This is a sobering remembrance, not a somber one, because we're not remembering Someone who died as if we're at a funeral or memorial service. That's not it, because he rose three days later, victor over all of it. So it's a sobering celebration, as I've titled the message this morning. We're going to go back to something that's taken place for 2,000 years. Think of this. 2,000 years ago, on a night, Christ gathered with 12 men, one of them who would betray him. And he was communicating to them what was about to take place. In fact, two days before that, according to Matthew 26, he said, in two days there's the Passover, and the Son of Man must be crucified. At the same time, the religious leaders of the day were making plans to see how they could take him by trickery, according to Matthew 26, and see how they could kill him. But they didn't want to do it on the Passover because there might be an uproar of the people. So for 2,000 years, we've been remembering what took place on that night. And the words, you might say the last words he gave them, imperative that they remember. 
But the roots of this Lord's table, we, we call it the Lord's table. We call it the Lord's Supper. I think it was uh, one of the great painters painted something called the Last Supper, which was really not the Last Supper, because we've been remembering it for 2,000 years. We call it communion because we're sharing together as we remember the incredible thing that took place on that night 2,000 years ago. But 1,500 years, almost 1,500 years before that, there was the Passover. It was on an evening, and it was about something that needed to be remembered. And so we really go back in history. Just let this sink in a little bit. What we're doing today in this very simple service we're going to participate in at the end of the message goes back 3,500 years. This has roots. This has history. And it's intended to keep us constantly reoriented to the great gifts and sacrifice of God through Christ on our behalf so that we may not forget, so that we'd be constantly reoriented to our true north. And so this morning, we're going to do what Christ said. Together, we're going to remember, and we're going to do it with two very simple elements. But before we do, let's look at some history of what took place. If you would turn to the book of Exodus... Remember that what Christ was doing on that night was participating in Passover, something that had been done for 1,500 years to that point. And it had very significant meaning at that time for these people, but it it went beyond that. We look at what he told them on that night to remember. So the Lord spoke through Moses. Let's get the opening of the chapter, chapter 12. And by the way, welcome to those who are online. Please, uh, uh, if you would... In preparation for the time we're going to have together in sharing the cup and the bread, if you would maybe find your elements and have those available so you can join us by extension. And if you have your Bibles at home, please turn to chapter 12 of Exodus. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This is where they were in bondage. You know the story. 400 years in bondage. Now the time has come for them to be delivered. They had been praying for it. They had been waiting for it. And this was about to come about. They had experienced nine plagues to try to awaken the Egyptian people, Egyptian leaders in particular, and preparing the Jewish people for what was about to take place. And this is the final capstone miracle that we call Passover, the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. So Moses spoke to the people and according to what the Lord told them. He says, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. In other words, this was the beginning of their new year. And they were to go back every year at this time to remember. It says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, that On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall take make your count for the lamb. In other words, if if you can't do it as one single family, then gather, if you don't have the resources, gather families together to do this. It was a communal thing. It was to be done together, just as we will be doing this morning. Describes... The condition of the lamb, what's required, it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it 
until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight at sundown. Imagine participating in this and actually taking a lamb, an innocent lamb, and slitting its throat, killing it, shedding its blood. You see, that what was taking place here needed to be dramatic. As Josh mentioned about the blood, the blood, both at that time and now as we remember the blood of Christ, it stands for life. It's not just, there's nothing magical in the blood in and of itself, but it represents life. And there's meaning, deep, deep meaning in the giving of a life as a sacrifice for someone else. So these innocent animals, which would picture Christ, were killed. Then it says in verse 7, They shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. And then skip down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Extraordinary death would take place. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. So what the Lord is seeking to show the Egyptian people as well as the Jewish people who God is, who's the authority, and who they should listen to. I'm going to execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then notice what it says. So this day shall be a memorial. You shall keep it. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Jewish people still celebrate Passover today. Even Messianic Jews, those that have come to know Christ, they still celebrate and then should. Because it was a permanent ordinance given to them to look back and remember what took place when they were delivered, miraculously delivered, from bondage in Egypt. They should never forget that. Today, the Jewish people should never forget that, and hopefully it will lead them to what the Passover actually pointed to. Because, you see, it was more than just a remembrance. As one writer put it, Passover always pointing to something beyond itself. Do you notice the cross in the doorway? Have you ever thought about the fact that the blood on the lintel and on the two sides of the doorpost makes a cross? Passover always pointed to something beyond itself. The elements that were on the table that the Jews celebrated for those 1,500 years of the time of Christ and continue to celebrate today have deep meaning They pointed to something else. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Because fast forward 2,000 years and you have the Lord's Supper. Look over in Luke. This is where Robert read this morning. Incredible words. In Luke chapter 22, he had asked the disciples to prepare the Passover meal. Remember, this is a Passover. What we celebrate today was not what they were celebrating. It's what came out of the Passover. So the roots go back 1,500 years. Our celebration goes back 2,000 years. And on that night, he had asked the disciples to prepare the room, prepare the Passover meal. They had done this all their lives since they were little boys. They, they knew the order. They knew how it was to be set up. They knew the elements that were to be there. They, know, they knew what to expect. 
but they had no clue what was about to take place. And so in Luke chapter 22, verse 13, it says, So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, that's, that's a phrase, by the way, in Scripture that's pregnant with meaning. This hour that had come at that time had been planned in all eternity. And now it's taking place. Deeply sobering to think about. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And listen to what he said. He said to them, with fervent desire, this is the New King James, with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat it, eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The New Living Translation puts it this way, I have, I have looked forward to this time with you with deep, deep longing, anxious to eat it with you. Now, these men had no clue what was about to take place in the next 24 hours. Christ knew. But he said, I have had this deep longing to come to this hour to sit at this table with you and fulfill all that the Passover pointed to. He says, I want to have this with you before I suffer. Now, they knew because he had said two days before, the Passover is in two days. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, must be crucified, but then raised on the third day. I don't believe these men, they heard it, but they didn't hear it. You know how that is when you, maybe you've told your children something and they, and, and you, now, do you understand? Yes, I understand. And then they turn around and do just the opposite of what you ask them to do or they totally forget it. These men had been prepared for this hour, this time, but they still did not fully get it. And they would spend years having the, the gravity of what took place sink in. Then he goes on to say in verse 17, he says, He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I'm not fully sure exactly what that means. Some relate it to the marriage supper of the Lamb and in Revelation. Uh, others say, well, will the Passover then be remembered uh, during the kingdom? Probably so. As the Jews continue to look back at the incredible thing God did in 1445 B.C. Do you think God cares about history? Do you think he cares about us remembering things that are critical, that are important? He instituted this incredible Passover meal, and then he gave the disciples this Lord's table that we're looking at and participating in today. What, what an incredible, incredible honor and privilege. And it goes on to say in verse 19, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now, see, they were, they were used to a certain pattern with the Passover meal. They knew what would be taking place when their parents had done it. They had these were adult men. Some of them married, had their own children probably. They had done it with their families. And, and so they, they were used to the pattern, and, but the pattern breaks here. And so Christ takes some of the unleavened bread, and he breaks it, and he hands it out to them, and he says, take this, divide it among yourselves. I'm sorry, he took bread and broke it, verse 19. That was back in 18. He says, this is my body which is given for you, some translations especially the Corinthian text says, broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. So on the table is a lamb. It's been killed. It was a sacrifice. It had been cooked. 
because they, they not only sacrificed the lamb, they ate of it, they participated together in a meal. And you'd think, why didn't you take some of the meat from the animal and share it? Because you had the lamb on the table, as one writer put it, but the lamb of God was sitting at the table. He was about to be the sacrifice. He was about to fulfill all those pictures. And then he would use this metaphor of bread throughout his ministry. John will be preaching on it in just a few weeks in John chapter 6. Because he says, I am the bread of life. The one who feeds on me will never hunger. I will satisfy eternally the hunger that you have. That Ecclesiastes explains as eternity in the heart. This sense that there's got to be something more. More than just this three score and ten. More than just this life and this routine. And with all its challenges and blessings, there's got to be more. That was the question that confronted me in, in 1967, the fall of 1967, when I was a senior in high school. I was graduating when the Vietnam War was in its height. The Tet Offensive in 68 hadn't taken place yet, and I had friends that had gone over and, and been killed in battle. And I had no clue what I wanted to do. I figured I'm, I'll end up in the military and end up in Vietnam. I was a... Uh, just a basket case in some ways, trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I got out of school and what life was all about. And, and I remember praying in the fall of that year, Lord, there's got to be more than this. And it was that fall that someone invited me to a youth meeting called Youth Ranch. And that's where I really understood the gospel, understood what this meal is all about, and really came to know the Lord and assurance of salvation. The Lord himself is life. He says, you feed on me, you'll be satisfied. No, every question won't be answered. Every little thing won't be hunky-dory. But that deep, deep longing for meaning and understanding where we came from, why we're here, where we're going, those questions will be answered. He said, I am the bread of life. So that's why he took this unleavened bread. It connected them with their history, but it also connected them with their future. And then he took the cup. And here's what it says in verse 20. Likewise, he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, they had seen, I think there were four cups in the Passover meal, or are today as they celebrated. But he took one of them, and he raised it, and he blessed it, and he gave it to them, and something totally different took place at this Passover meal. This is my blood. This is my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm making a promise to you now, a new covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant, not a covenant of law, but a covenant of grace and a covenant of shed blood for forgiveness, the blood of the Lamb. When John began his ministry, this series that Pastor John is doing on Behold the Lamb, when he began his ministry, he pointed to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He did not say, Behold the Lamb of God, which will help you learn how to live life effectively. Or behold, here's the Lamb of God, which will give you a good example to follow so that you can live a, a good life. Behold the Lamb of God who will help you get to heaven. No, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, not just yours, not just mine, but the world. 
His body was broken, his blood was shed. Now, one of the things that happened in the sacrificial system of, of Israel, when they killed a lamb, it was, relatively speaking, a painless, quick death. The, the throat was slit, the death was immediate, and the blood was shed. So they would do that. Something very different is going to take place in just a few hours with Christ. His death will be so brutal, so senseless, so extravagantly horrible that it pales in comparison to the death of these animals when his body was broken and his blood was shed. And why? Why did he do that? Well, his blood was shed. He died. His body was broken so you and I could live. His body was broken so you and I could be made whole. He was forsaken so that you and I could be accepted. Do you realize that we're going to be looking more at the cross and what took place at the cross in just a moment? And there's a lot of physical detail that's just almost hard to imagine. But it pales in comparison to what happened spiritually to Christ. The most excruciating statement he made on the cross was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't even say, My Father. The wages of sin is death. And as you've heard over and over if you've been here, death in the Bible is not keeling over dead, but separation. To be separated from the Lord forever is the most horrible and unimaginable thing that you could think about or consider. He took the degradation, the sin, the separation for all people, for all time. He took it on himself as if there was a huge funnel that had its point setting on his shoulders so that all the sins and all the degradation, all the evil, all the murder, all the rapes, all the the lying, the stealing, anything you could name, anything that breaks the Mosaic law, any, anything that breaks laws of civil institutions, it was all taken on him at that point in time, and the Father turned away so that Christ took the separation for you and for me. What we're going to be looking at in his physical death is to help us understand the gravity of that spiritual separation when he says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He was forsaken so you and I could be accepted forever. He was executed for your wrongs and my wrongs so that you and I could be forever acquitted. And he paid the debt that we owed that we could never pay so that our debt could be wiped out. One of the main words used for forgiveness in Scripture is a word that has those two meanings to it, to be fully acquitted and to have your debt canceled. What Christ did on the cross that we're looking at this morning, that we're remembering, provided the way that you could be forever acquitted for whatever wrong you've ever done or ever will do, that your debt is fully paid so that what Christ said on the cross when he said it is finished, he really meant it is, it is finished, totally paid in full, and God was satisfied with what Christ did. That took place 2,000 years ago on the night before it happened. Christ is preparing these men and said, I don't want you to ever forget what's about to take place. So he said, do this in remembrance of me. And what is it we're remembering? A couple of weeks ago, Mark Wright was teaching Sunday school. And as he was teaching, he went through what took place in Roman crucifixion. And and then he, he said, why Roman crucifixion? In fact, let me, I did a little email with him 
following that. Let me just read to you. He says, I know, in his email to me, I know that the scripture teaches that the sinless Messiah had to bear the sins of all people in order for anyone, all people, to ever stand before a righteous God. And that the shedding of blood was required for the redemption of all mankind. But I pondered, why Roman crucifixion? The reason for his question, let me just go through some of the notes that he gave uh, that evening. Before crucifixion, this not this is true for anyone that was crucified in that day, but it seemed like it was taken to a greater extreme when it was applied to Christ. There was the flogging beforehand, and the flogging had a particular purpose to it. It was to weaken the person, but it was to further humiliate the person. They're about to be crucified, and they're whipped beforehand. Many of you have heard uh, the description of what the whip looked like at that time. It had leather uh, leather straps connected to a to a, a central post, uh, and at the end of those leather straps were either sharp rocks or pieces of lead, so that when it hit, it, it tore the flesh. It was intended to be brutal. It was intended to inflict humiliation as well as pain and suffering, and to weaken the person so that their death would be even quicker. So you had the preparation through flogging. And then you had the carrying of the cross. Now, we typically think of someone carrying a cross with the cross on their back. In fact, when you see uh, reenactments of the crucifixion uh, and the travel of Christ to uh, Golgotha, it usually is this cross that we typically see. But uh, in that day, they had the uprights that were already planted outside the city city wall at a main gate where most of the people going in and out would see these upright beams, knowing that this was a place of execution. It'd be like going into maybe a mall and outside you have an electric chair sitting that would catch your attention. It was it was, they were left there to let you know you don't mess with Rome. You violate the Pax Romana and you're you're in deep deep trouble. And so. These beams were uprights that stayed there, and when the person who's going to be executed walked to the place of execution, they carried on their shoulders a cross beam. And then when they got to the place of execution, they were laid on the ground, and their hands, probably through the wrist, were nailed to this cross beam. This was called the patibulum. And then they're hoisted, hoisted into position, and so they're placed in this upright position by uh, what system, pulley system they use, we don't know. Maybe it was the cross was short enough just to get the person up there. But the patibulum then is hit on top. So you'd have more of a T than you would the typical cross. And then there was an accusation, a legal document, you might say, that described the crime that was committed. Remember, these crucifixions, these death sentences were capital crimes. The most horrible crimes committed in the kingdom. That's what was happening with the two men on either side of Christ. And so they would take that and they would write it out and then they would place it above the head on the top of the patibulum. That's probably why we get the typical cross symbol that we see. Above the head was the charge against the person who would be, be executed. And the goal was to make the death slow, to make it painful, 
to make it agonizing. In essence, rather than a beheading or killing with a sword or any other method that would be quicker and we might say more humane, this was intended to inflict pain and suffering and a slow, agonizing death where in many cases, and we believe that was the case for Christ, it was not the actual wounds as much as it was suffocating because they could no longer push up to be able to breathe and fluid collected in the lungs. And the purpose then on the part of the government was deterrence through cruel public humiliation. It was highly visible and it was brutal. This is what the Lamb of God suffered. And it was a small, as brutal as this is, it was a small picture of what Christ was suffering on a spiritual level when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Back to Mark's question, why? Why Roman crucifixion? Christ could have been executed in any other way. But it seems, and Mark and I talked about this, he sent it in his email, and I've been thinking about it ever since he brought it up. And I just want to point to two things that I believe is important for us to keep in mind this morning. That kind of death, the Lord knew what he was doing. God the Father and God the Son and all eternity planned this hour that Christ came to. This method coming at this time in history with this method of execution. It was not by accident. But why Roman crucifixion? I believe it exposed the seriousness of breaking God's law and the cost of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation. James 2.10 says, a person can keep the whole law, all the Ten Commandments, all the other commandments, all the, the Levitical system, they can keep all that, but if they fail in one point, they're guilty of all because... The scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory, the perfection, the holiness of God. None of us could ever measure up. We can never meet the standard of holiness required to enter heaven and live eternally with a holy God. And so we were placed in a situation because of our sin and our guilt that we could not do a thing about it. That's why religion will never do you any good. In fact, it'll do you great harm. If you are thinking that somehow... God requires that you try to live up to a certain standard, and if you do, then he will accept you. You try to be a good citizen. You love your neighbor. You do your best. You be sacrificial. You're a giver. You're a regular church attender. You participate in communion. You do all those things, and along with what Christ did on the cross, those two together should put you in pretty good position. But the Scripture says no. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of those sins is death. And I believe that one of the reasons Roman crucifixion was to show just how ugly sin is in God's sight. Someone once said, and you've heard it said maybe, if you were the only person in the world, Christ would still have died for you. That's how much he loves you. And that's true, but that could leave us a wrong impression. They could say, well, if I was the only person in the world... Christ would have done that for me. I must, I must be pretty neat. Now, you see, if you were the only person in the world, your need would be just as much that it would require the sacrifice of the Son of God on your behalf. You can't change who you are. Only the Lord can do that. I believe that when we come to the Lord's table, we do remember our sin because that's why Christ died. 
We do remember the wrong that we've done because that's why Christ died. But if that's all we do, then we're just going to be going through a litany of failures. And as Pastor John says, when he leads communion, we're not going to be relieved. We're going to be burdened further. See, that's the second part of what took place and an answer to why Roman crucifixion, because it demonstrated that the law was fully satisfied. God's demands were fully satisfied so you and I could be forever set free from its bondage. Look, if you would, over in Colossians chapter 2. And this is just absolutely phenomenal. Colossians chapter 2. This describes what took place on the cross for you and me because your sin and my sin required it. But this is why we rejoice. It's, it's sobering to realize why he died. But it's absolutely overwhelmingly exciting to realize what he accomplished for you and for me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. How did he do that? Having forgiven you most every trespass. Really? No. How many? All. How many? Really? Everyone? Even that one that you may be remembering right now? Maybe you've been in communion services where they've pressed you to try to remember wrong things you've done and feel greater guilt. Now, the Lord wants you to take whatever it is to him in remembrance of the fact that he paid the debt already. His law has been satisfied. You can be forgiven and set free from the burden of the law. He says, all trespasses. How did he do that? Well, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. What's the handwriting of ordinances? That's the law. In Scripture, of course, God's law, but even human laws that God has established through civil authorities, uh, all those things we know we've done that are not right, that are wrong. He says that he wiped them out. That word could be translated. In fact, I think some of the newer translations have obliterated. He's obliterated those handwritings of requirements, those laws that condemn. He's obliterated them. How did he do that? He's taking it out of the, out of the way. And verse 14 at the end, he's taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, what was the title on Christ's cross? What was the charge against him? King of the Jews. So that's the capital crime. Well, it was in Rome but more so with those who wanted to get rid of him. He had never done anything wrong. He had never broken the law. He fulfilled the law, fulfilled God's righteous demands on your behalf and my behalf because we couldn't. And then he took all the penalty on himself, deep within himself, so that for an eternity and a moment of time, he was separated from the Father so that you and I wouldn't have to be separated forsaken so that you and I could be accepted. And then after he did that, he rose from the dead. So those things that are written against us in the law, those things that burden us, that make us feel separated from the Lord and from others, he's taken care of. 
He demonstrated the law was fully satisfied so you and I could be forever free from its bondage. We're saved by faith in what Christ did, and we walk by faith in what Christ did. We don't walk and try to live in order to be accepted. We walk and live in a way that honors Him because we are accepted. And we're accepted because what He did made us acceptable. We had nothing to contribute but our sins and our wrongs. That's what we're remembering this morning at the Lord's table. Some of you remember an old hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. And I, uh, there's one line out of that song uh, that is just uh, deeply, deeply moving. It's the third verse. This is by Horatio Spafford and Philip Bliss. It says, My sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's what we're remembering this morning. That's what we celebrate. It is sobering because of what took place and why, but it is exciting, it's fulfilling, it's, it should be a time of celebration and joy because we know it's finished, it's done, and God is satisfied with what His Son did. On our behalf. A man from India wrote this. Jesus, for you, a body takes. Your guilt assumes. Your bondage breaks. Discharging all your dreadful debt. Can you then such love forget? How could we ever forget? Even if we've been doing this in church tradition for 2,000 years, how could we ever forget? That's why the Lord says, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. So we have two simple elements here. We have a little piece of unleavened bread, and then we have a cup that represents the blood. You could not get more simple than this. But at the same time, can it be more profound when you realize what it represents? John Newman, would you ask the Lord's blessing on the bread? Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you died on the cross. And thank you for that this bread is a reminder of your body and your covenant. In Jesus' name, amen. So this simple piece of bread reminds us that 2,000 years ago on a given evening, Christ had picked up out of that Passover meal this unleavened bread, and he broke it. And he handed it out to those men, and he says, Now this is my body, broken for you. Every time you do it, remember me. Let's partake. Carl, would you ask the Lord's blessing on the cup? Dear Father, we so grateful for the sacrifice that you made on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. Tetelestai, it is finished. The final words that you said as your last drop of blood was shed for us. We thank you for that sacrifice that you made that brings us salvation. Bless this cup. So really the blood of the cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us, remembering that it's his, the blood represents his life. He gave his life for you and me so that we could have life. Uh, but it also reminds us of the joy, because wine in Scripture is a picture of joy. That's why this is a, it's a sobering celebration. We remember what Christ did and we celebrate. You can rejoice this morning 
that Christ's blood was sufficient for you. His life was sufficient for you. You're forever forgiven if you place your faith in him. It's a free gift. And then you have his ongoing life and the power of his cleansing blood to be able to walk in fellowship with him. So there's reason to rejoice. So he took the cup after supper. He raised it and he blessed it and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also said, every time you do it, you're not just looking back. You're actually pointing ahead because you show the Lord's death until he comes. So let's bow together and close this portion with prayer, and then the the worship team will come back. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you for sending us your Son. You, as the source of all life and creation, created us in your image. You placed us here, and you loved us with an everlasting love. It was not conditioned on how good we are, because even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Father, that though dead in trespasses and sins, you took upon yourself the penalty that we deserve, and you wiped out the laws against us that create our guilt. Rising again to prove and verify the truth of what took place, we now, through faith in you, have your life, your very life within us. Because of your shed blood. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we look forward to the time that you return. Until then, Father, may we be faithful to you in our walk with you daily by the strength and grace and the presence that you place within us. Praying tonight, or today, for Pastor John as he makes his trip home beginning this evening. I pray for rest, refreshment. Uh, for good opportunities to bless and serve others along the way. And we just look forward to hearing the, the good news of what's taking place there this week in Liberia. We commend them and ourselves to you in the name of Christ. Amen.